Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, the role that money plays in a modern political campaign. The midterm election is weeks away, and campaigns have spent months and months raising and spending money for everything from office supplies to political consultants. Each donation and purchase has to be logged and reported in quarterly reports. But instead of looking at the fundraising horse race, we're going to examine what the money pays for. Chances are that at some point in the last few months, you've answered a phone call from someone seeking your input for a poll. That poll may have been paid for by a candidate to help them learn how to better appeal to voters. Mike Noble is the Chief of Research and Managing Partner at OH Predictive Insights. Our conversation started by looking at the out-of-state money that's rolling into Arizona races and how much of it came from California. When you look at the two sides, one is, okay, let's say the money aspect. One is that you're seeing Democrats more flush with cash than Republicans than ever before, uh, especially when you look at the federal contest. So congressional districts down south, you mentioned, uh, but also, let's say, the U.S. Senate race. It's an incredible amount of money. There's not an, even close to that much money in here locally in Arizona. And so the Democrats with the uh, Act Blue and some of these other uh, tools that they've had, they're able to raise money from across the country to districts that, frankly, I bet you many of those folks have never heard of or know who's even running in that district, but they're able to essentially channel funds over there. But the, the, especially in the main um, Senate battleground, the, the battle for the U.S. Senate this year, you look at all five of the key races like Georgia, uh, Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania. The Democrats have significantly more money than the GOP, and uh, it's just an interesting advantage. What's that impact? Why does money matter? Outside of polling, I'd say money is the other, the second biggest KPI or key performance indicator that you can look at in a race because it's not because of money. It's that the money is what you use for the resources to pay for, uh, let's say, campaign literature, signs, uh, uh, broadcast TV. So all these different vehicles and ways to get your message out. So when it comes to out-of-state money, we saw a lot of East Coast money, New York, Massachusetts, Virginia, coming into all of these races. What is it about Arizona candidates that people in, well, Virginia's not in the Northeast, you know, but New York and Massachusetts, what is it about the East Coast and Arizona races? Well, I don't think it's really about uh, the the geographic. I mean, all the places that are primarily coming from California, uh, you know, New York and uh, let's say Massachusetts, some of those states, they're all incredibly blue states. They have almost super majorities in those states. I mean, the Republicans, they're they're barely a fighting force. And so why we're seeing it here, especially is because what we weren't five years ago here in Arizona was a battleground state. So when it comes to that funneling money, you said money is a key indicator, but so is polling. But do the two necessarily mesh up? Can you have high polling and low money or high money and low polling? Yeah, so uh, it's interesting is that money is a key factor of resources, right? So knowing, hey, how much ammunition? So let's say you and I were going against each other in a race. You had a million dollars. I had $30,000. Odds are you'd probably beat me. However, the devil's in the details of where is that money? If you're spending that money primarily on a 
bunch of things that really didn't have to do with direct voter contact. So let's say you're paying staff and consultants. Here's the thing. Staff and consultants don't really get you any votes. But communicating your stance and position like, hey, I'm XYZ candidate and these are the three things I stand for. This is why I should deserve your vote. It depends on how you spend it. But a good example, like the Democrats, are, for example, in 2020 in the U.S. Senate contest, they massively outspent Republicans. But like even in the state of taking on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Amy McGrath took him on. And she literally was the top fundraiser in the country. It was Mark Kelly, Arizona's U.S. Senator, but he got bumped down to number two. Incredible amount of money. She lost by like 15, 20 points. It was just brutal. And you look at her cost per vote of how many votes she got based on how much money was spent, which is basically how to uh, gauge your efficiency. It would have, which by the way, I'm not suggesting this is obviously clearly legal, but to put it in uh, digestible terms, like if you were better off handing out $100 bills of folks as they were voting, uh, which would have been less expensive and probably far more effective than whatever they were doing. So I think that's a key to see if you have money, it's how you spend it. But the thing is, it doesn't matter how you spend it if you don't have money. True. And like you said, we're not suggesting any candidates start handing out $100 bills. Um, 100%. Yeah, completely illegal, not to mention the ethical and moral side of it. But but just to look at you know the effectiveness aspect, right? So when it comes to money and polling, for example, in the 6th Congressional District, Kirsten Engel won Siskamani down here. Engel's raising a ton of money small dollar donors from out of state. Siskamani is getting out of state money from PACs. Now, you and I pay attention to where the money comes from. and But does the average person who you poll really care where that money comes from? Do they even care about the campaign finance? Uh, they do a little bit, but frankly, there's a lot of other issues that override it. Like, it's a great kind of talking point for a campaign that, hey, this person that I'm running against, well, you know what? 95% of their donations are from out of state or from, you know, California, et cetera, right? Like basically framing is, hey, they're, they're not even in Arizona, right? But frankly, I don't think it really, outside of that, I don't think it really voters know or track or care. And when you look at the difference, uh, it's interesting. So candidate committees have always outraised everybody because that's the genesis. What's interesting, this election, at least on the federal side, PACs actually have spent more money than actual candidate committees. And where you see that difference is that Democrats are kind of uh, ahead of the game when it comes to small dollar donors. They have figured out they can send out an email from Nancy Pelosi or or one of these uh, top Democrats, Michelle Obama, et cetera. For a no-name candidate no one's ever heard of because of this massive network, you see all these little small dollar donations come in, but they add up really quick. And for the GOP, they're about two to four years behind on that advantage the Democrats have. And so they've been having to backfill a lot with their political action committees or kind of more corporate or business type money. Yeah, I see that a lot because I get emails from both sides and I see the Democrats doing that a lot and the Republicans starting to do it. Yeah, just interesting, like institutional dynamics there. But that's where the money advantage is. But again, you're seeing it clear as day. I think it's going to be a big takeaway from this election cycle. Well, and depending on what the results are, the Democrats may outpace, but if they have a lot of losses, maybe people will look at it differently. Well, well, that's what it's interesting. That's what happened in 2020 in the Senate. You look at a lot of their races. There's just basically a point of diminishing return. 
And if they would have even taken a fraction of that money and put it down ticket to like state legislative races, county suit, all, you know, these much lower races have almost no money. They could have made a massive impact, but instead it was kind of, especially like a speaker McConnell, I mean, they put an incredible amount of money and got whacked by like 20 points, which is a shellacking in politics. So, I mean, a close race is within three points. So when it comes to races, if we look, for example, at the seventh district here, Grijalva Posolo, the independent redistricting commission, when they drew that, actually called that district outside of the competitive range. When people see that, does that affect polling and and also money? You know, everybody just assumes that Congressman Grijalva is going to win. And Luis Posolo is just the next in a long list of Republicans he's beaten. So the race ratings that you're talking about, if it's 10 points or more advantage for whether respective party, they consider that a, a safe seat. And a lot of folks look at it, you quantify out the, the money in the safe districts compared to battleground or more competitive districts. You'll see there's a massive disparity that the challengers in those races to those incumbents or the people on the other side of that advantage, they really struggle to raise money. And typically incumbents are in a good spot because they have known donors, have been around for a while. It's massive because when you're trying to get donors, it's like getting an, an investor. Like, I think you should invest in me because I think I have a good shot of winning. And of course, the payoff is the person gets elected. However, you're seeing that with an investor, you said, hey, you're, you're first you're going to look at, hey, is this seat even competitive? It's like, OK, you're going against a seven turn congressman. There really hasn't been any recent big issues or, or kind of black marks, so to speak. You know, but I want you to give me fifty four hundred dollars for my uh, campaign. And it's like, well, that or, or, or this a very competitive district or a swing district. So it's much more of a challenge for folks that are challenging someone in a safer district. So it does make it a huge impact and the numbers absolutely reflected. So in some ways, to really kind of put it on the ground in southern Arizona, not only is Luis Posolo running against Raul Grijalva, he's also running against Juan Siscamani in the district over. They're both Republicans, Siscamani, Angle. That's oh, it's always a competitive race, but now it's an open seat, more competitive, and donors have only so many dollars. Yeah, and so that's the interesting part is that uh, so those two districts, the Grijalva is considered definitely uh, safer, but the the other district just to the west there, that is definitely considered just based on the fundamentals of the district. It's just more competitive, so you see significantly more money being put over there, and that's just one of the redistricting that happens every two years. Why it's so important because how those lines drawn. If you get drawn into a, a safe district, well, you can hang out there for some time, but. They put you in more of a swing district. You got to fight every two years. So basically, right when you get reelected, you have to get back to campaigning and raising money again to do it all over again. Which we've seen, especially in that southern Arizona district, whatever you want to number it. I think it was eight when I got here and then it went to two and now it's to six. It's the same basic district and it's always super, super competitive. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. That in the, the northeast uh, O'Halloran's district, which was, used to be District 1. I think it's two now. <laughs> I don't know why they don't just keep the numbers that carry over. I, they didn't even add any districts. They changed the lines a little bit, but why Why change that? It doesn't make sense. Just to confuse me. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that must be. <laughs> well, thanks for spending some time with us. Not a problem. That was Mike Noble with OH Predictive Insights. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. 
This week, we're diving into campaign finance. If you look at a campaign finance report for most statewide or federal offices, you'll likely see one of two names, Win Red or Act Blue. These two organizations have become the backbone of online political fundraising for the Democratic and Republican parties. Colin Delaney is the editor of ePolitics.com and is a digital strategy consultant for campaigns. I started by asking him to tell us the basics about Win Red and Act Blue. They're basically pieces of technology that have sprung up to help campaigns raise money, primarily from small dollar grassroots donors, the kind of folks that before the internet, it was really hard to fundraise from in bulk. And you know, before Act Blue and before Win Red, there were standalone systems that would do this kind of thing for campaigns and also for you know nonprofits and other organizations. But um, Act Blue and Win Red provided sort of central clearinghouses for the Democratic and Republican political groups. Now, Act Blue has started to branch out into the nonprofit world as well. How do people get to Act Blue and Win Red? Do they go through the campaigns or do they? finding them through internet ads, or how do they find these groups? That's a great question. I mean, the vast majority of digital fundraising, particularly grassroots fundraising that happens nowadays, takes place through email. So you end up on a campaign's email list. Uh, One hopes it's because you signed up for that list, but there are a lot of consultants and campaigns that are buying and selling donor lists, which I think is a terrible practice. But normally you would get an email from the campaign or from an outside group that's directing you to the campaign fundraising page, or you would uh, find it in an online ad, a social media link, or uh, just go to the campaign website and see it right there. As you said, Act Blue is older, and I've noticed since Act Blue has been around, Win Red has not been around so long. But you see a lot more of those small dollar donors who make a regular contribution every week, every two weeks, $25 until they become big dollar donors over an entire cycle. Is this because of WinRed and Act Blue that it just makes it so much easier than having to write an individual check? every week or month or whatever to the campaigns? Yeah, I mean, certainly there are stories going back to uh, like 1984, where supposedly Gary Hart, you know, after he did well in, um, I'm going to mix it up, but in New Hampshire, the checks came in too late to help in the next round of primaries. I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but it's a good story. The recurring donations didn't start with WinRed or Act Blue. They've actually been a part of nonprofit fundraising for a long time. But uh, as it's sort of become almost a cultural shift, consultants and fundraising advisors encourage campaigns and groups to try to get people to sign up for a recurring donation. It was a real dynamic that we saw all the way back in like 2008 with Obama that big donors typically max out and then they can't help you anymore. Small dollar donors, if your campaign goes through hard times, uh, you can go back to them again and again and again, whether they're recurring or not. So of the four congressional candidates running in southern Arizona, the two districts we have, three of them are using either Act Blue or Win Red. Basically, does every major party candidate now use these? It's more and more common. There may be reasons that you don't use it, right? 
you may get a fundraising system that shaves a little bit off the cost. You may have one that's integrated in with your mass email system and all this kind of thing. It's more of a tactical choice by the campaign whether to use it or not. It's just uh, so much easier than you know trying to administer your own system. Uh, it can be just so much easier to set up an Act Blue page and go from there. So I think you see it that way. And then if you're a bigger campaign, I'm sure that they you know work with you to to you know get the most out of it. So looking at the race in our sixth congressional district here, which is an open seat, which makes it very competitive. Everybody in the country is watching it, of course. The Republican Juan Siscomani has gotten 51 percent of his donations through Win Red, as we've looked at them for the last quarter. And Kirsten Engel, the Democrat, has gotten 76 percent of her donations through Act Blue. So do candidates in competitive races, which this is, usually draw that heavily from these two groups? You know, it's just hard to say. Like, for instance, a campaign may have a different system for handling big dollar donors than for small dollar donors. You can look at that and it suggests that maybe the Democrat is getting a higher percentage of small dollar donations. But without, you know, more information, that's just a guess. So sometimes it's a sign of grassroots enthusiasm. Sometimes it's just they made a technical decision to do something. So while going through the campaign finance reports, we spotted a couple other organizations that look like they're similar. Uh, Antidote, Swing Left, Democracy Engine. So are Act Blue and Win Red being victims of their own success and other groups coming along? Well, I think uh, I just checked into uh, WinRed's history before I got on with you, just to make sure. And Anadot um, either predated it or started up around the same time. On the Democratic side, uh, I don't really think there's a challenger that is particularly significant. I mean, Act Blue has that first mover advantage. People, and again, you've got those network effects where the donors are comfortable with the system, and then the one-click donations make it very easy for them to give. Where if you're using another fundraising system, they almost certainly have a one-click donation thing, but it would only work for your campaign, most likely. All right. Campaign finance is an ever-evolving bit of fun. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to put it. It is where the money meets the road. That was digital strategy consultant Colin Delaney. As our lives go more and more online, one would expect that campaigning would do the same. Dr. Yotam Shmargad is a professor at the University of Arizona College of Government and Public Policy. He studies political debate on online platforms. We started by talking about his past work looking at what's more important, to spend on an online campaign or to get your message in front of online influencers. Ever since the beginning of really what we might call the internet, there's been questions as to whether this would open up the field for new kinds of voices, new candidates. And the work that I did, that was mostly around the 2016 election. I did find that certain social media metrics were associated with um, a kind of equalization. But what was very clear from that work is that money mattered more. That was the main predictor of who won the, the race. And, and then there was some uh, opportunity to move the, ne- the needle a little bit. The way that that plays out is through influencers 
uh, or what I call two-step flow dating back to mid 20th century by Katz and Leisertzfeld uh, around this idea that people don't learn about politics directly from politicians or from the media. Most of the time, they learn about it from other folks that they know who are more connected, paying more attention to the news. We call these people opinion leaders um, back in the 40s or influentials. In some sense, there's a prescience uh, in, in that work to the world of social media where you could really not only see that play out, people discovering information mediated through uh, influential accounts, but also measure influence. You know, the way I do it is through retweets. This allows you to both uh, capture who is connected to who because you can see who's retweeting who and then who's more influential because you can see the people that are getting most retweeted. And so it was really through that metric that you can see some equalization in races where there is financial inequality. When there's a lot of money in the race for Senate races, for example, social media is just not really doing much beyond you know, what candidates are able to do with TV advertising or, or other kind of more traditional venues. When it comes to online campaigning, uh, social media, a lot of people say, oh, it's just a toxic wasteland now. Uh, pick your platform. It's all terrible. Are there different social norms that we find in the online landscape versus in person? There not only appears to be different norms um, guiding toxic language offline and online, but also across platforms. Some of the recent work that I've done in that area um, compares Twitter and Reddit, it's pretty clear that people are highly reactive on Twitter. Um, if, the, if other people are using uh, toxic language or if uh, folks are getting rewarded for using toxic language with likes, on Twitter, you see a consistent increase in the likelihood that they're going to use toxic language. On Reddit, that's not the case. Oftentimes, and on average, in fact, threads will begin more toxic on Reddit than on Twitter. But what happens as a thread evolves on Reddit is it becomes less toxic. And in fact, users on Reddit don't seem to react to whether other people are using toxic language. And as a result, over the thread's evolution, it becomes less and less toxic. So does online incivility factor into local elections and what people think of various candidates? Or is it really just what they think about the other people on whatever social media platform they're on? That's an open question. A lot of the work that is done surrounding incivility in politics is not done at the local level. Um, I'm working with a team of researchers uh, to build some classifiers of incivility, uh, whereby you can just feed in text and you get a, a probability score about whether the text contains name calling. What's interesting in that work is that oftentimes politicians will say that they don't like social media because of how toxic it is. Our findings suggest that Politicians are much more influential in whether things are toxic than the public are. That when a politician is using incivility, that the people who mention them later on in a tweet are more likely to use a name call. And the opposite relationship is there, but weaker. So when the public uses uh, incivility, the politicians are more likely, but it's not as strong of a relationship and it's not as large of an effect. This is kind of a rare case where politicians actually lead in setting the mood of the discussion, there's been work on, for example, who leads on issues and politicians tend to lag there. The public and the media are much more influential about what gets discussed. That's interesting that the politicians are, for lack of a better term, leading the incivility. 
and not the issues. You might think the politicians would want to lead on the issues and let supporters or or detractors lead on the incivility. Yeah, right. And this lines up with, uh, you know, some of what we know now about polarization, which is that we're seeing effective polarization increase. So we're seeing how people feel about members of the other party get worse at the same time as we're not seeing issue based polarization. Where are we seeing the most social media campaigning? Are we seeing it at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level? Is it even just all across all campaigns? I don't have recent numbers, but spending tends to track online as it does offline. Candidates who have more money will tend to outspend their competitors um, in, in all venues, social media and traditional media. So expect more advertising coming from candidates that are better funded. And then, of course, there's the whole issue of a lot of the ads nowadays not coming from candidates at all, but coming from super PACs that are not technically or formally uh, related to the candidate, but are increasingly good at lining themselves up with the positions of particular candidates. Do we see what candidates put out in their ads and social media posts really affecting discussions, or are people talking not necessarily about what the candidates are trying to get them to talk about, at least on social media? Yeah, there's some work by a political scientist by the name of Shelley Boulaine that recently came out showing candidates are less responsive to constituents online. And a lot of the reasoning there is that candidates believe that it's not a great medium. In some sense, it's a noisy environment. It's harder to know whether messages are coming from your constituents or possibly coming from ideologues outside of your district or information operations that may be happening outside of the United States. It sounds like when it comes to social media spending, as you said, if a campaign has more money, they're going to spend more money on social media, but campaigns still really concentrate on, shall we say, the the more traditional ad venues, uh, radio, television, signs on street corners and yards and things like that, that social media has not gotten its hooks into the finances yet. Yeah, that, that seems to be the case. And again, there's probably good reason for it. Twitter, for example, is not representative. And uh, the slice of the voting body that you see on Twitter skews younger, more democratic. And so I think that for that reason, targeted messaging is much more appealing than the kind of broadcasting that you see on Twitter. And so on Facebook, for example, a lot of the reason that they've been able to capture a chunk of political advertising is because they allow for hyper-targeting of people and groups. It's a way of being able to reach the people that you want in a cheaper way and only paying to reach the the folks that you want. All right. Well, thanks for uh, walking us through some of this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Dr. Yotam Shmargad. He's a professor at the University of Arizona College of Government and Public Policy. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with help from Samantha Larned. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. 
Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.